0: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God!
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did what? Struggle, you know. It was
1: incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writers talking about writing. This is writers talking about other stuff, too. It's good to be with you. Thanks for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I'm feeling well. Uh, My cold, my bout with the flu has now ended, and I'm currently on the rebound. So my spirits are on the rise, and my malaise... Uh, appears to be dissipating. So I figured I would start uh, today with some mail, and thanks as always to everybody out there for the kind emails and the tweets and the Facebook messages. Uh, I always appreciate hearing from you guys, and I'm going to read one such letter here on the air. A listener named Mark has emailed me in reference to my own writing, uh, in particular this novel that I've been working on and struggling with in recent times. It is a passionate letter uh, it is a cri de you might even say. So, uh, here it is. It begins. Dear Brad, please, please, please publish your book. I was a successful writer at a young age. I completed a draft of my first novel before I was 20. I won awards in high school for articles in both the student newspaper and for our town's local paper. Everyone said I was great and that I would go far dating back for as long as I remember. Well, you know what happened? I crumpled under the pressure. I changed beginnings and endings and middles of my book. I worked hours and hours editing. Those hours turned to days, and those days into years, those years into now. It's 2012, Brad. I'm 37. I'm still working on that original novel. Why has it taken so long to complete this still unpublished work? ...because I was afraid to let everyone that believes in me down. I didn't want them to read my final draft and think that it was nothing less than masterful. People sometimes ask me when I'm going to publish that book. I tell them that I'm still editing. I read and enjoyed your first book and will also buy your second. Your podcast is awesome and that's how I found out about you. Please don't be like me. You've got a lot of talent and you will succeed... I know there's a lot of pressure because you have new fans that you don't want to let down. But do it anyway, Brad. Or become as I, always wondering and never knowing if I've written a classic. One final thing, and that is, I'm high. I smoked a lot of pot before beginning this letter, so please forgive any grammatorial or spelling mistakes. I often find that I think better when smoking pot. But maybe not spell better or write better. Have an excellent day, and please take my advice sincerely, Mark. So, uh, thank you, Mark, for sending your thoughts. I appreciate it a lot. And uh, regarding my novel, you know, I think I'm going to stick to my plan. Currently, that's where that's where my head is at. I'm going to take some time away from it. I'm going to let it cool off a bit, get some perspective, recharge my batteries. And then I will go in, I will take another pass, I will set myself some deadlines, and I will try to be as objective and dispassionate as I can possibly be when evaluating the manuscript and setting my course for the future. That's the best I can do, you know? I'm going to have to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with myself and the book at some point in the not-too-distant future, and I will decide how to proceed. So I hear what you're saying, I take it to heart, and I appreciate the uh, cannabinoid thoughts. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest today is Ned Vizzini. Very pleased to have him here. He is the award-winning author of It's Kind of a Funny Story, which as many of you will know was made into a major motion picture starring Zach Galifianakis. Uh, Ned also wrote a book called Be More Chill and another called Teen Angst. Nah. He is the co-author with Chris Columbus of the fantasy adventure series House of Secrets, which is due out in April 2013. And his latest novel, now available in hardcover from Balzer and Bray, is called The Other Normals. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. This is my conversation with Ned Vizzini.
1: I've read that there are only prodigies in math and music and that there are no real writing prodigies. It's not something that you can be prodigal at, but I did have an interest in it very early on. I was born in New York up until I was six years old. My family lived in Manhattan the Ramones song, 53rd and 3rd, we were actually on 53rd and 3rd. It was a weird place to grow up. Uh, there were a lot of homeless people and drug dealers, and there was a nightclub next to our house that got shut down because it was a heroin peddling operation. It
0: sounds like my neighborhood here.
1: <laughs> yeah. it's it, was, <laughs> it moves around those locations. And the landlord died and he was a horrible person his name was lunny and (laughs) once in the house plumbing just wasn't working in the apartment this was like an eight unit uh, house and my father complained to lunny
0: uh,
1: i got no water and lunny said hold on mr vizini i can help you and he left and came back and just handed him a bucket and walked away that was his (laughs) management strategy and when he died Everyone in the building just didn't pay rent for a year. The house was caught up in this legal shenanigans because it went to Lunny's brother, but he didn't want it because it was such a money pit. And as that was all getting figured out, everybody just didn't pay any rent. And that's how my parents saved up enough money to move to Brooklyn, where I grew up for the rest of my childhood. That's a fortunate
0: yeah. set of circumstances. It's it's the great <laughs> real estate escape. <laughs> Thank God Lonnie died. Yeah. Um, okay, so where in Brooklyn? Not that I I mean I don't know Brooklyn that well, but what but neighborhood? In Park Slope, Brooklyn, okay. which
1: went from being a place that teachers and small business owners lived in in the late 80s. It was initially a pioneering lesbian neighborhood and that's what it was when we moved into it but it was becoming more of a young professional neighborhood and now it's you know if you're in international finance in London and you want to raise your kids in New York you could buy a townhouse in Park Slope for 2 million dollars I saw that happen growing up uh, it's it's right near Prospect Park it's a very nice beautiful it's close to the neighborhood described in Fortress of Solitude. I was
0: was thinking of Squid and the Whale, too, isn't it?
1: It is exactly the Squid and the Whale, and that's one of my favorite movies, and it's completely accurate in its depiction of Park Slope, especially in the father being unable to find parking, and that is what my father did for (laughs) 10 years of my life. He drove around cursing because he couldn't park.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was looking at, there was like a job thing potentially for me um, about a year and a half ago in New York, and I flew out there and talked to some people, and then was, like, scouting locations, you know, for a p- potential move. And I was walking around Park Slope. There were a lot of strollers. It's you know.
1: legendary now for being the home of the Park Slope moms. Yeah. Uh, most recently I saw it in the news because of the baby chinos. All the coffee shops now sell baby cappuccinos, caffeine, <laughs> and then you can get for your baby. Uh, I know that the creator of the Sex and the City television show had his eye on a Park Slope Moms show five years ago. I don't think anything came of it, but it's the kind of environment that you could make uh,
0: an HBO show about. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, you know, and it's like, it feels like, well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, you know, growing up in Brooklyn with proximity to New York City, I always feel like people that I meet from there have a certain sophistication or street smarts, or maybe I'm imagining this, but I just feel like you have access to quite a lot of culture and quite a lot of different kinds of cultures and that that has to be in, in some ways good for you.
1: You're absolutely right. It starts with the subway. When you are 11 years old in New York, 12 years old, you can take the subway. You don't have to be 18 to take the subway. The subway by the time I was 11 and 12 years old wasn't the death trap that it was in the late eighties and very early nineties. So I would go on the subway and I would see people from all walks of life and I would be in close proximity to them and I would see what they were reading and what they were wearing and what they looked like. And that parade of faces uh, is both
0: challenging and inspiring. Yeah. And then, um, The other thing I was going to say about Brooklyn too, in terms of it's like cultural currency is that it's almost this, especially for writerly people, it's almost kind of like taking the place of New York City at this point because so many writers have been forced out. It's so hard to live in Manhattan now because of the rents and everything that if I feel like Brooklyn is sort of, when you think about like the epicenter of the publishing industry, I don't think of Manhattan as far as the writers go, I think of Brooklyn.
1: Brooklyn is ascendant. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm embarrassed that it's an interest on blogger.com. When you list <laughs> your interests, there are people whose interest is Brooklyn. It's, it's a swamp. It's, it's not the holy land. Uh, it smells. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of unpleasant people there. Uh, growing up there, you are liable to get mugged and get eggs thrown at you. It's become mythologized to a degree that's a little troubling. That said, I began writing when I was very young for this newspaper called New York Press that was published in Manhattan. Uh, John Strausbaugh was one of my first editors. And John Strausbaugh would say it's not that there are no working artists in Manhattan anymore. I still know a dozen, but I used to know hundreds. Right, And it's really a matter of numbers. And there's a critical mass of working artists that make a place artistic. And that critical mass really can't afford to live in Manhattan. And so uh, it has moved to the outer boroughs and to Brooklyn in particular.
0: Okay. And so this is the thing, though, is that when I think about cities... And, uh, you know, especially these, like, major metropolitan hubs, I think it's of a, a great detriment to New York City, to Manhattan, to not have artists living there. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it does something to a, a place when artists can't afford to live there, so they all move out. Like, what's left then? You have bankers and you have lawyers and you have business people. Not that those people nothing, – there's nothing wrong with those people, but I just think that, like, there is, like, a crucial – I don't know. I I wouldn't want to live in a place where there were no artists. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? I listened to your
1: podcast with Lauren Stein recently, and it was great because there were things I really agreed with you and him about and things I disagreed with you about. One of the things I agree with you both about is the banks, the ATM facilities. There is something Faceless and dehumanizing about any business being replaced with a spigot for money. (laughs) There's no character to an ATM location. It's somehow not like the subway. You see people inside, but you never get a sense of what they're like. When I observed people in the subway when I was a kid, I would be wondering do they have cats? Uh, Do they love football? When you see people getting money out of a bank, it's just something we all have to do. You don't see anybody reading while they're doing that. Right? Uh, There's something odd, too. What is the critical mass of banks that an island can sustain more than Starbucks or McDonald's or any of the other chains that people complain about? I worry about that, the ATM facilities. <laughs> Just being overrun. <laughs> I, at some point, it becomes a playground for the rich, and right. there is no option for anybody other than a college kid who's being supported by their parents or you know, someone who made a lot of money in copper in Europe you know, to live in Manhattan. And right. my belief is that it ultimately cycles back, You know that things collapse, change and there will be artists there. Again, it will be what it once was, but it's
0: impossible to deny that it's different. Yeah, and I've heard heard people talk about, like, Manhattan has almost become, in some respects, like a big mall or a big tourist thing. You know what I'm saying? And that obviously simplifies it greatly. But (laughs) I think people, I mean, these are people who've lived there for years and years, and it's just like, you know, we moved out to Brooklyn, and, you know, you go into Manhattan, and you go to Times Square, or you pass through... You know, the lower Manhattan, even, and it just feels different, I guess, to people. And I guess we're rooting for the next collapse then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to not be doomsayers, we can talk about the things that are great. KGB Bar is still there. And when I walked into your office, Brad, I see your books. KGB Bar is a bar that I went to in my early 20s, all through until I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, it's a legendary East Village writer bar. All the writers you can name have read at KGB on their way up. It's run by a guy named Dennis Wojchuk. He has the whole building, and above the bar is his apartment. It's filled with the most astounding collection of books. He's been getting arcs, galleys, yeah. first editions for 20 years. right, And Seeing it, I would always think to myself, who's going to get this? Maybe I should talk to Dennis. (laughs) He's got to have something planned for it. Dennis is not the kind of person who doesn't have a plan for uh, the historical value of his library. But stuff like that is still in New York, and you can still support it and go out to KGB bar right now and see someone do a reading tonight. So it's not
0: gone. Uh, It's just different. It's just different. So – to get back to um, precocity, and I, I get what you're saying. Like, and this is the thing about when they talk about like child prodigy stuff, is that a lot of times you know it's it's sort of like a blanket term placed on people who had success young or who did something or achieved something at a young age. And if I can find a common denominator, you know, because it's a it, it's a is a genetic? Is it just they've just been blessed by the gods? Like you, there's always the stories of Mozart or whatever composing operas when he was four. But it's a little bit more complicated than that, I think. And if there's any common denominator that I can locate with confidence, it's just that you started young. You had a passion and an interest that you recognized and pursued at a young age. And that's really, I mean, it sounds like, you know, what happened with you. And maybe that's really it. Maybe if you were prodigious at anything, it was just recognizing what you liked and then having the wherewithal to pursue it. Whereas most kids would be just be like playing tag or, you know, dicking around and not really focusing their energies. I love reading. I
1: think it's important to remember that it starts with that. There are a lot of people who want to be writers who don't read. There are studies that show that, Fifty percent, slightly less than 50% of Americans read literature. But 80% of Americans, when asked, will say, oh, I have a book in me. I could write a book. (laughs) Right, right. So those percentages are skewed. And I think we have forgotten in some ways how important it is just to have people who read. You can't have writers without readers. And if you're a reader and an active reader, you're incredibly important. So it started with reading for me. I was very lucky in that my father told me before I started first grade, Ned, for the next 10 years, you're going to be in school. I don't know. He thought I was going to drop out in 10th grade or (laughs) something. like And there are going to be tests and homework, and your teachers will say that all that is very important. And it is, but what's most important is that you put your antenna up that you open your eyes and you open your ears to something that you actually enjoy doing. Because when school is over, you'll be out in the real world, you'll have to make money. And if at that time you found something that you actually like to do, you'll be light years ahead of everybody else. And I took that very seriously. And so from first and second grade, I remember sitting in class just pausing and thinking, is this what I love to do in the middle of math, you know, right. is this, do I love this? Does this feel great? No, it doesn't. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate that in, in second grade, I came into school one day and the teacher said for the next two weeks, we're going to do writer's workshop. And she handed us all blank books. They were hard bound, but they had about 16 blank pages in them. It was an art supply, but I remember holding this book in my hand being blown away, I, I thought that blank books were very rare and that they were hoarded by the book companies somewhere. I didn't know you could just get <laughs> right. a blank book, and I just jumped right into it, and I and I and I started writing stories in the book, and I think I was conscious even then that it was something I loved to do. So that is just a matter of me being seven as opposed to seventeen when I. Knew that I liked that.
0: Were you, I mean, were were you like a gifted and talented kid? Were you a bright kid that people recognized as being bright? Did you have that going for you?
1: Yeah, I was a bright and talented kid. The parent teacher meetings always went the same. Ned's very smart. It's great having him in class. He talks too much.
0: He talks out of turn. (laughs) Right. And he needs to control that. that. So that was it, all the way through.
1: I had one very important and prescient meeting, private meeting with a teacher when I was in seventh grade. She was my math teacher. She saw my math homework. It was corrected by her. But when I got it back, I went through and every place that she wrote an X, I wrote in a red pen wrong and like big letters (laughs) on the page. And she brought me aside and said, this will hurt you you trying to be perfect and punishing yourself. Because I, I was a perfectionist. I tried to get a hundred on every test and get into Harvard. The, the part of being gifted and talented is that you're sort of expected to do that. right? And I should have listened to her. I, later in life, when I went through some difficult times, I in many ways was
0: writing wrong and big letters on parts of my life that, that I didn't need to. Yeah, it's interesting when you look back, like Couple things. First of all, like how impactful these small moments can be in a child's educational life. Like, I I can distinctly remember teachers and their names, and I don't. I have a terrible memory, and most of my school life and my childhood is just lost into the wiring or whatever. But I can distinctly remember teachers pulling me aside and being like, "You, you can write. You should write," or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have, you know, Mrs. Cunningham. I remember that, and I remember writing a poem and. You know, whatever it is that you happen to be good at, I think a lot of times you can trace it back to just a couple of instances in your childhood where somebody said, Go this direction, or you know, you can do this and you know, um, that strikes me.
1: I remember the name of the second grade teacher. Her name was her name was Doris. Yeah. And I'll never forget that. She was instrumental. I don't remember the name of the math teacher who told me to lighten up, but I remember that she had bright red lipstick and a buzz
0: cut. That was her look. So <laughs> I apologize. I do remember something about you. You were yeah. very helpful. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing too, is that like, it's amazing to me, especially now that I'm a parent and you're a parent as well, that like you can see the personality and the deep kind of core traits of a person from a very young age. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I mean, you know, just to kind of try to draw like a parallel line. Like I remember, I remember I had to take some medicine. I was at school and I had to take medicine because I had whatever and, you know, they, they keep the medicine down in the office or in the nurse's office. And I remember, um, getting up in the middle of like a, it was like my guidance counselor had like a class. I don't know if that happened at your elementary school, but it was her, it was her room, Mrs. Hughes. And rather than like tell her, I just like looked at the clock and was like, oh, I gotta go take my medicine. And I just like got up to leave. She's like, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going to take my medicine. Like, like she was crazy, you know? And there's always like, I mean, I don't know if this is the best illustration, but I've always been sort of like independent in that way. And like, I sort of like bristle at the fact that like I had somebody, why do I need to check in with you? I'm big enough. I was like in second grade, you know? So like you have those things and I can probably see echoes of that in different stages of my life, but it's there from the beginning, you know? Yeah. Brad's a great writer, but he has a tendency to leave the room. (laughs) He just walks out (laughs) unannounced, you know? Um, so anyway, when you talk about breaking in at the age of 15 or whatever and starting to get published, and, and forgive me, you mentioned your pub- your earliest editor's name. Or- name is John Strausbaugh. He's, he's, he's one of them. Okay. So how did it really begin? Like where did you get your break? I was
1: going to Stuyvesant High School, which was – and is a
0: school for gifted and talented. My, one of my best friends from college went there.
1: So you, you know the facility. Yeah. It's a special and interesting place, and we could talk a lot about it. But perhaps most important to my life was that on the walk from the subway to Stuyvesant High School, there were these green boxes on the street that had New York Press. New York Press was a competitor to the Village Voice. The Village Voice started out as a pay newspaper. New York Press had a different business model. We give away the newspaper for free. We make money off of the pornographic ads in the back of the newspaper. Brilliant. This uh, was an innovation uh, of the late 80s. The guy who founded it was named Russ Smith. He lives in Baltimore now and has a... A porn company. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> he has a web web magazine called, okay. called Slice. I picked it up... And was just blown away by the writing. The people who were writing for New York Press at this time included Jonathan Ames, who went on to create Bored to Death on HBO. Sure. William Monahan, who is an Oscar-winning screenwriter for The Departed. Um, Matt Taibbi, who you Uh now see on Bill Maher uh, delivering his political opinions. Amy Sone, uh, George Tabb, Jim Kniffl, these were monumental writers in my mind. Every week, a new issue of this paper came out, and it was free, and it really focused on confessional essays. Uh, so Jim Kniffle, he he was a bitter... Uh, misanthrope who would ride the subway and write about how his cat had a urinary tract infection and he would (laughs) craft that into a 1200 word David Sedaris like piece uh, that just hit me uh, more than uh, David Sedaris and after reading this newspaper for a couple months I decided to try to send them some writing
0: I've always been like that. See, that's that's the difference. That's the difference. You know, when we talk about, uh, you know, prodigiousness, that's the difference. Like, the, you're the kid who actually did it. I appreciate you saying
1: that. It's something that I value very much in myself. I used to play in a band, and we were once talking about how are we going to promote this next show? And one of the other members of the band said I'm going to make the flyers and this was the sort of person who would say I'm going to make the flyers and then the flyers wouldn't get made and I I blew up at him a little bit and I said you know you go and you eat yogurt and you check your email and all of a sudden there aren't any flyers so are you going to make the flyers or not and from then on the band would make fun of me a little bit and repeat that to me oh you check your email and you eat yogurt and it doesn't get done (laughs) But that is something I've always tried to fight against. If there's something I know I should do and I put it off, I, I feel terrible about it. Um, it. I mean, my wife says that this is something about that. This is Nietzsche who who nailed this. But I was introduced to this idea by uh, eternal recurrence. She says it is like if you die without doing what you're supposed to have done with your life, you're doomed to relive your life over and over again. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) I was introduced to this concept, though, by a a lesser-known writer, by Jim Goad, who, in his book Shit Magnet, which is an incredible book. (laughs) An incredible title. (laughs) Yeah, it is. An incredible cover, too. It's it's him (laughs) kneeling with a halo over his head and a turd falling on him. It, It came out in, like, 2000. You can track it down. He says that when you're on your deathbed, you and only you will have the final moment of reckoning where you look at yourself and realize, I did what I needed to do with my life, or I didn't do it. Oh, yeah. And whatever else happens, you will be the person who judges yourself before you become an infinitesimal speck on an infinitely tall wall of fossilized dirt. Right. I believe that. And so those moments of do I try to write something or do I not try to write something? Uh, you got to try to write something, otherwise, you're going to hate yourself. A- and, and I felt that way even when I was 15.
0: Wow, okay. So you started submitting. I did. And what did you hear back?
1: I crafted an essay about my high school. I sent it in, I was careful. Uh, one important thing was that I found the address. People don't realize, even today, that magazines and newspapers have addresses for unsolicited submissions. Now, a lot of it is done on the Internet, but but there's a lot of work that just goes into finding the address. I sent it in. I was all excited. Maybe I'd get published. My submission came back in the mail six weeks later. Not enough postage. <laughs> <laughs> so I put more stamps on it, and I sent it back. You have to be persistent That's as right. a writer. There you go. Lesson number two. <laughs> and, and probably... Two or three months after that, I, I got a call from Sam Sifton, who's now the national editor of the New York Times. Sam Sifton said, your stuff is good. It's it's This piece is a little long, but if you write something shorter, we'll publish it. And I, I couldn't believe that he said that. I have to credit my mother here. My mother taught me how to write business correspondence, how to make sure that you put a cover letter on something and it has your phone number on it and those skills she's a she's a businesswoman she owns her own business really came into play here sure it is amazing those little details mm-hmm. you know so i go into the new york press offices i'm 15 years old i know i need to talk to sam sifton i go into a room and there's this man now, sam sifton was the restaurant critic for the times for about two years after Frank Bruni, he's done doing that now. So I no longer need to hide his identity of medium height, closely cropped blonde hair. He's on the phone saying, fuck him. Fuck them. (laughs) Fuck you. We made the village voice go free and fuck you. And then he (laughs) hangs up the phone and he turns to me and goes, who are you? (laughs) And that was my introduction to the world of, Alternative newspaper. It's like
0: Peter Parker, like, but with like you know some blue language.
1: <laughs> I I actually never made that connection. Uh,
0: you're, you're totally right. It is like that. It's yes. like the Daily Planet. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it felt like a little gruff, like the gruff editor, mm-hmm. the young upstart. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the thing about it too is that and this is something I would often tell my uh, college students is that when you have that kind of gumption and you put yourself out there like that. People in the adult world are super receptive to it, I think, or oftentimes they are because it's like, wow, who is this kid at this age trying like they want to help you and mentor you in ways that they might not want to help you when you're, say, 25. I think they also want to
1: know what's happening in teenagers' heads. Yeah. The premium that we place on teenage thought in this country continues to astound me. I get it artistically because it's the most technicolor time in your life. It's your first kiss, your first hatred.
0: Stakes are high. Right. Stakes. When are they higher? Right. Uh, but maybe, maybe when you're on your deathbed realizing that <laughs> yeah, that, you have not achieved what you wanted to do. That's probably, that's probably true. <laughs> I
1: haven't gotten there yet, but there's also just marketing wise, there are people who are paid a lot of money to try and figure out what teenagers think. Right. So if you're an actual teenager and you know what other teenagers think, you have something very valuable that you're offering to the world. And I try to tell this to the young people who email me and ask me how to get published. You have a lot of value because you're a young person with an opinion. If you can articulate it, look, if you notice that people at your school are wearing purple and you get in touch with somebody at uh,
0: the Gap or whatever, you know.
1: I was going to name one of the teen magazines that are now defunct. So I'll say instead, uh, Rookie, you know, the web Sure. magazine. And you say, hey, there's a lot of people wearing purple at my school. Do you realize that's a valuable thing that you're offering? It's kind of a Jedi mind trick because as a teenager, you think, oh, the world is big and powerful and doesn't care about me. You got to flip it around and realize these people are looking for content and they're looking for opinions and you have them.
0: So, and yours is authentic. Yes. You know, as opposed to like conjured or like, uh, what is it? You know, test marketed or whatever. You know, there's something unfiltered about a fifth, an actual 15 year old kid and just, you know, you're not hardened by life. Uh, or at least probably not, you know, to the extent that most adults are. And there's some sort of like, you know, what is it? Like the genius of a child, just the fact that they're, I don't know, I guess unfiltered or unbeaten at that point, there's a purity to it that maybe you can't replicate at later times in your life.
1: Have you ever heard of the primitivist art movement? No. Huh? The primitivists are people who at least as of about a decade ago collected art made by children or art in the style of art made by children under the assumption that the emotional expression
0: was most pure at that point in life. See, I can buy that. Same thing with like when chimpanzees paint, I'm always like, there's (laughs) something there.
1: Later on at New York Press, I went to an event that I was reporting on for primitivist art And I found myself talking to this woman who was, she was explaining to me about how, you know, when a person is four years old, there is no filter. And I'm looking at the art and I say, so all these paintings are done by four-year-olds? And she goes, no, no, these are mine.
0: (laughs) 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 Insert foot in mouth.
1: (laughs) That's one of many foot in mouth (laughs) moments that I have. I met. Uh, Lewis Lapham at a party, editor of Harper's, and I got confused and thought he was the editor of Harper's Bazaar. I thought that the <laughs> Harpers and Harper's Bazaar were the same magazine. I that that was bad. Uh, I, I was probably about seventeen or something. New York Press put me at a lot of strange positions, and they they, they were uncomfortable. They, they, you know, it, it wasn't. Uh, uh, almost famous as a
0: movie that a lot of people assume I would like. It's not Yeah, there are striking like William Miller parallels, you know, it's, it's,
1: it's not that I don't like it, but there's a moment in the movie that rings false for me. And that causes me to disconnect from the rest of the movie. And it happens early on. The kid is at the concert. He's trying to get backstage. The big bouncer's closing the door in his face. And then he turns up, and the groupies who are waiting to meet the band, they giggle at him, and they find him cute. That that doesn't happen. When you're a 15-year-old... People sort of hate you. They think you're kind of a freak. They support you, but you're a kid, and they don't quite know how to act around you. Uh, they don't giggle at you and take you under their wing. Granted, I mean, I, I
0: and deflower you later in the r- movie,
1: r- right? <laughs> uh, that Great, collectively, yeah, that's <laughs> that,
0: that's that, the that's, magic of cinema. The, the,
1: the, I, I think that stuff is very damaging to. Uh, Teenage boys in general, because you grow up thinking that that will happen, right. and and when it doesn't, you become bitter, and sometimes you do stupid things because you're bitter. I, 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 so that's what happened to me. I, I feel I feel strongly about that. <laughs> I, I, I wish somebody had pulled me aside at some point and said, the way that you see teenage boys depicted in film overstates by 200 percent their attractiveness to the opposite sex
0: that would have been helpful to me yeah, right just to give it like a like more of an accurate appraisal but I feel like uh you know that stuff aside you know because that, that's a good point like you're not gonna be warmly embraced by all the adults in the room you're gonna obviously stand out you know what I'm saying you're gonna go to these parties as a fifteen year old working under the uh, pretenses of journalism. That's not a normal visual for people. So you're going to automatically leave people wondering. And I I guess like, I mean, it makes sense. They're not going to be like giving you hugs and bringing you over. And you know what I'm saying? They're going to probably just sort of look at you askance and think like, who the hell is this kid?
1: Yeah, this is in my first book. It's called Teen Angst Now. And there's an essay in it about the first New York press party that I went to with my teal backpack and an encounter that I had with one of the writers from the newspaper. The nice thing about it is that as a writer, you don't have to show your face. And at that same party that's discussed in that book, something embarrassing happened between me and Amy Sone. Something very inspiring happened between me and... A writer whose name I'm I'm sadly forgetting now. It might have been Lionel Tiger. I met him. I shook hands with him. I was introduced to him by John Straussball or Sam Sifton. And he looked at me. And he goes, "Oh yeah, the kid. I don't remember your name, but I remember your shit."
0: <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> he remembered my shit <laughs> you know we are blessedly disconnected from a lot of this stuff the proof is in the pages and if you do a good job hopefully people will take notice and they'll remember your shit you know <laughs> so what happened with amy son i have to ask a- amy son either because she was just messing with me or because she had been drinking she kind of offered to deflower me in sort of a humorous <laughs> way, and like gave me your phone number. And oh I my god! Her. So it almost did happen for I you. I called her very nervous about it, and then she she left me a message and, and told me that she was just kidding. It was it was very very <laughs> awkward. It was like the real version of almost famous, and um, it's and it's in the book.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. So you're doing these assignments. You're writing for this, uh, you know, press. You're growing up, um, and so then like. Take me through the next transition in your life. You're going to college. The next transition in my life was a difficult one.
1: I had a lot of self-doubt, a lot of shame. It seems strange to associate shame with success, but failure is something I'm comfortable with because I know that I want to do better. Success is something that you have to maintain and you can feel like you don't deserve it. I know a lot of people who were working for New York Press who were more talented than me, whose careers have not ended up where I expected. I was never convinced that writing could make me any money. And... It wasn't just me. My teachers told me it wouldn't make me any money. My parents told me it wouldn't make me any money. My friends thought it was fun and interesting and cool. But the idea that I could do it professionally, it was a big leap. And I thought I needed a backup plan. And when I went to college... Where would you go? I went to Hunter College in Manhattan. Okay. And I majored in computer science because I thought that my background in writing would be avocational and I would do other things to make money and write on the side. There was something else big going on at this time too, which was that a publishing company in Minnesota called Free Spirit Publishing came across my work. I got my big, big break in 1998 when the New York Times Magazine did a special issue about being 13. And they asked me as a 17-year-old to write an advice column for 13-year-olds because they were familiar with my work from New York Press. And uh, that uh, was the first thing I wrote that was national. And Free Spirit Publishing saw that and contacted me. And they put out a lot of self-help books for teenagers. Uh, They thought I had something that might appeal to boys as a voice. And I told them, well, I've got all these things I already wrote. Why don't we just collect them and put them out and then... I wanted to write a whole new book, and and they did, and, and it was my first book, and it came out as I was finishing high school, and I took a year off to do that before I went to
0: college. And With your led- parents' support? With my parents' support, yeah. But they must have been impressed, like our son is getting published when he's not even out of high school.
1: <laughs> well, my mother,
0: I remember asking her,
1: did you see New York? Press published something, and she told me, "I don't read the filth that you write. <laughs> I, 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 wrote about beer and pot and not sex, but sexual urges and a lot. I used curse words too. I, I thought it was great to be able to use curse words. I couldn't believe I could oh, do yeah. it. And I, and no, I, I still I, get excited. I, I ran a little <laughs> wild with it. Yeah. Uh, and." I think they were very proud, but they were concerned about their son becoming a writer. I think just it's, it's a tough life. You know, you have big ups and downs, and sometimes you never get up from the downs. So right. um, they, they, they were supportive, but a little concerned and excited about the idea of me having something solid. Uh, so in between high school and college, Teen Angst and I came out, and I worked at a – web startup. This was during the internet boom. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Computers were something I was always decent at and thought I could make money at. So now I go into college and I minored in English and in one class in English I wrote a short story about a kid who had a device that made him cool. I really got that idea from just watching television and realizing that all of these products they're trying to sell us, they're just trying to sell us the ability to be cool. And and being cool was something I was obsessed with as a kid because it seemed to me that it wasn't really connected to money. It was something genetic. There were people who didn't have money, but they had it. And there were people who had talent, but didn't have it. And, and, And there was some point where I made the decision that I didn't belong in that group. In high school, I played a lot of this card game, Magic the Gathering. (laughs) And there was a a real moment of, well, look, I can try to be one of the cool kids, or I can accept that I'm the guy who plays Magic the Gathering. I've got these things in this newspaper, but I, I don't have... The circle of friends and the attention from the opposite sex that everything I've seen in media tells me I deserve just for being a kid, you know, right. let alone a kid who's published something in the newspaper right It was a weird time for me, uh, and writing about uh, this guy who got something that makes him cool, it was fun, and that short story i i I liked it, and I thought it could be something more. And then I went to a wedding and for my first book, I printed up a lot of flyers. I'm an inveterate self promoter. It comes from my Italian peddler heritage. (laughs) Uh, I know sometimes it's wrong, but it makes me feel good because I won't have any regrets. If, If you really try hard to promote your book that at no point will you look back and say, oh,
0: Yeah, you left it all on the field.
1: Yeah, y- yes, yes. You leave it all on the field. And actually, uh, I would take these flyers that I would print in my books and I would go to rock concerts. I would go to Weezer concerts and I would come with 2,000 flyers and wait for the show to end and I would hand out flyers and go, buy my book. It's like the Weezer of books. Buy my book. It's like the Weezer of books. And then I'd go to Blink 182. Buy my book. It's like the Blink 182 of books. And at the end of the concert, I'd look down and, of course, my flyers were all trampled on the ground. You know, Most uh, yeah. people, a lot of people just dropped them. And I thought, yeah, this is it. I'm in the streets. This is, I'm doing it. I'm like a rapper. I'm making it happen from the ground up. That was a, a part of me that I was very comfortable with. So I had these flyers and I went to a wedding. And I started talking to some guy at a wedding. It was like my cousin was getting married or something. And he worked for William Morris for the agency. And he gave my flyer to an agent at William Morris who got in touch with me. And that was how I began a relationship with a professional agency that, that is still happening today. I am still work with the same person in New York. So we decided to take... This story about this guy who gets some device that makes him cool and try to turn it into a book. I initially went to Alloy. Do you know what Alloy is? I'm thinking Alloy Entertainment? Alloy Entertainment. Yeah. Alloy Entertainment was new at this time. They were a young adult packaging company. Right. I was just going to say the word packaging. Yeah. Packaging was new at this time. This was post-Harry Potter, because Free Spirit Publishing, which made books for teens, put out my book, I was in the young adult book world, which was a world I never really thought of myself as going I mean, I had, you know, designs on being, I don't know, a great literary writer. I thought maybe that's what I'll be. Uh, young adult was not something people were proud to be a part of back then. The term didn't really exist. You would say, oh, I write books for teenagers and people would say, well, when are you going to write a real book? That right, was right. the response. But I was in that world and I had the meeting with Alloy and they seemed like very nice people. But after the meeting, I talked to my agent and and I said, oh, they seem like nice people. And he said, well, do you think you could write a book without their help? And I said, yeah, I I could do that. And he said, well, if you go with them, they'll take 50% of the money. Or if you do it yourself, you'll get – 85% 85% of the money and I'll get 15% of the money. What are you? <laughs> You're like, well, I, I was never that good at math, but I can figure that out. <laughs> right. So <laughs> so I started writing this book called Be More Chill and uh, it, we sold it. And when we sold it, and that was the first time in my life where I thought I can do this professionally. Uh, it, it, we sold that book for more money than I ever thought I would get.
0: For there was an writer. auction in the whole thing. There was an auction. That's very rare. Thing. The whole thing is very rare. Your whole career arc, I mean, starting with how young you were, but also getting that deal, those happen, it seems like increasingly infrequently. I I think they happened a lot more in 2002. Yeah,
1: uh, this was the same. And this was like the advent of the whole YA wave, it, it, right? Or it, that was the beginning of it. Very, I'm very very lucky in that regard. This was the same time that uh, Nick McDonald's book Twelve yeah. came out. Remember that? Yeah, uh, he was like, he was like 12 when he wrote it. He, you know, he, he was 16 when he wrote it, and it yeah. came out when he was 17. He's a very nice guy and a very smart writer, and that's a great book. Uh, and I even at that time in my life, you know, I had to had to work hard not to get jealous of people, and that's something I've gotten better at as I've as I've gone along. I'm jealous of you right now. Well, I'm seething. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, you know how I've beaten it. How I just remove avenues of jealousy from my life. I don't look at feeds from. New York media outlets. I don't look at uh, news of the publishing world. Right. It's, See, I'm doing this podcast twice uh, you, a week. You,
0: you <laughs> can't. You can't avoid it. I cannot it's escape. Pretty it's pretty cruel. Oh wait, you you got nominated for the Pulitzer Prize? <laughs> right. How great for you! Tell me about that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's tough for you,
1: honestly. I don't I don't know how I can help you with that, uh, because the way that I've dealt with it is cowardly, but it works for me. So. This was a time where the young adult book world was changing monumentally in two ways. Harry Potter and a resurgence in realistic topical challenging material for young people. You go back to The Outsiders. That was a book that was for young people that had challenging material.
0: That movie, I mean, the movie version I saw when a kid still, like the Stay Gold, Boy, the whole thing still haunts me.
1: Right. The 1980s, you're really talking about Babysitter's Club, Bach's car children. In 2000, Laurie Halls Anderson published Speak, which is about a date rape. Uh, Walter Dean Myers put out Monster. All of a sudden, there was a willingness to tackle deep material. Perks of being a wallflower was also a big part of this. So at the same time that Harry Potter was exploding commercially, there really was an artistic willingness to take risks. And very fortunately, I was in the middle of that. So Be More Chill sold, and... How old were you? I was twenty-three.
0: Okay, so just out of school, or
1: yeah, yeah, I was just I was just out of school, and I am going to deviate for just a second into a Nirvana story. Yeah, Nirvana was also my favorite band growing up, and ultimately detrimental, ultimately bad to lionize a suicide case, but I still love their music. In November of 1991, two months after Nevermind came out, Nirvana showed up in Montana or Minnesota to play at Tower Records. And there was a line around the block. And uh, Chris Novoselic says, That was the first and only time I heard Kurt go, Oh shit. How many people are here? This is nuts. I would never expect this many people to show up. I've waited for that moment to happen <laughs> for my whole career. And it's never happened. I've never shown up at a reading and been like, wow, this is <laughs> this is unbelievable. Right. Uh, I- I'm a best selling author. It says so on the book. But I'm not a New York Times best-selling author. I'm a best-selling author in terms of the other books that they sell. That's how that term got right. attached to me. Right. Starting five or ten years ago, people would report that I was a
0: best-selling author. I don't know where they got that information, and I never challenged it. It it really is like uh, because like I'm I'm an L.A. Times best-selling author, and people like you know who don't have any kind of uh, you know uh, connection to the publishing world automatically assume that means these tremendous things, and it's like oh no, you know there are different kinds of bestsellers, I guess. <laughs>
1: there there are, but the moment in my life. That maybe came closest to that moment of, oh, shit, was when I went into the Disney Hyperion offices. They were the folks who had bought the books. It was actually Talk Miramax books at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Folded. That was the imprint. I walked in to meet my editor and... There was a huge spread of cheese and champagne and all of the publicity people were out and they gave me a big round of applause and I got introduced to everybody and I, and I was like, holy holy crap, this is, this is a real, I'm, I'm, I'm a bigger deal than I thought. That's never happened since
0: then. That was the only time that that ever happened. <laughs> that was the only time you got the sweaty cheese cubes and the, and the champagne. I, I, yeah. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So uh, Be More Chill uh, came out and it's a book that continues to have an audience and a book that I'm very proud of. I don't think that the book's sales justified the sweaty cheese. <laughs> right. Right. I think that they thought it was going to be a bigger book. And a very dark and difficult period began in my life at that point that lasted on and off in some form for about six years. I uh, signed a two book contract to sell that book. So I had to write a second book. And for the first time in my life, I didn't know what to write. And I was, I had moved out of my parents' house, sort of, but sometimes I was crashing there. And I was very worried about the future because you get paid a chunk of money for a book advance. You've got to stretch it out for a long time. When are you going to get the next chunk? It's just not like working at a job. It's not. It's yeah. totally different. And I had always thought about suicide. I always sort of assumed that it was a good option for
0: me, an artistic <laughs> option. I, uh, it, it is It is un, unfairly or unnecessary. What's the word I'm looking for? It's glorified, romanticized, yeah, and romanticized in ways that it should not be. Probably, it,
1: it, it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Death is always going to be romantic. You just have to have a little bit of self control. I don't know why. I, I just, I thought I could write things and then kill myself, and then I uh, have Blade, done what I needed to do in my life. I, blaze of glory. It, it and. Attendant to that was, you know, certain kinds of self-destructive behavior. I never became a heroin addict, um, but, uh, eh, you know, the thing about drugs is when you're doing them, you never, eh. it always seems good at the time, but it's difficult to look back and find out what they
0: actually gave you. I've been going through this lately. And I don't want to go off on too big of a personal tangent here, but like, it's confusing. Drugs are confusing in a variety of ways, but one of the main ways that I'm concerned with now is in um, trying to assess their value because it's not black and white. It's not, they're, they're, it would be wrong to say that they are the key to everything, obviously, but it would also be wrong to say that they are the uh, road to nothing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you know, my record albums, all the art we enjoy, or a lot of the art we would enjoy, doesn't exist without it, or at least to some extent. So it's just hard to measure. And I sometimes wonder if maybe my drug experiences were squandered in my youth. Like, would it be? Wouldn't it be wiser to like wait until you're 60 to start getting into that stuff? You know? Know. That's my plan. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no. Retire to Palm Desert, and you know, now, now, now I've I've got a kid, so m- me and my wife can just. Wait until he's off to college. Right. And then all bets are off. It was a it was a tough time for me mentally and for the first time physically I started to have changes in my body. Like what? I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. I would Lie awake at night, and my brain could just cycle on the same thoughts over and over again. You're not going to finish this book. You're you're going to have to give the money back for the other book. Uh, you're not going to have a real job. What can you actually do? It's gone. You were a, you were a flash in the pan as a kid, and now it's over. So listen, you fucker. What are you going to do with yourself? I, those thoughts. Yeah. Okay. And so, like, is that like a bipolar thing, or like what is it? I went to a shrink. The shrink told me that I had a, a a pretty typical case of unipolar depression. And I was prescribed Zoloft. And I took it for oh you no, know, a summer, I don't know, six months. And I felt a little bit better. And then I stopped taking it because I thought I'm better. And I also thought. You're weak. You don't need this. This is crap. You've got invented first world problems. Shut up. All you have to do is finish this book. All you have to do is finish this book. Finish this book. That's all you have to do. You're
0: tapping my inner monologue. Do you realize this? (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) I
1: did have a book that I was working on. And I had gotten about 150 pages into it. And I'd been working on it, you know, for a year, a year and a half. And they were starting to ask me at the book company when it was going to be done. and My agent was starting to ask me for it. And I just knew it was bad. And that's a horrible feeling. Yeah. <laughs> when you're writing something you know is bad. So I, one night had a flash of inspiration. I decided, well, oh, the reason the book is bad is because it's all in past tense that's boring and present tense is exciting but there's no fine replace for tense on Microsoft Word so I I sat down on my computer I was in my parents house I hadn't eaten the whole day except for like a quarter of a bagel and I started just deleting all the verbs and rewriting them in present tense and I did that probably for about three hours before I sat back from the computer and I was like you're crazy. You know, you're not funny crazy. You're not cute crazy. You're crazy, and you don't want to be alive. And what are you going to do? And I, I you know, I was—I would get these cold sweats. Uh, it was all happening physically. It was all happening. Right. And I made a phone call. I called up the suicide hotline. The suicide hotline people told me that if you are feeling suicidal, and you've stopped taking medication that you're supposed to take, that's a medical emergency. You have to go to the hospital. So can you walk to the hospital, or do you need us to send an ambulance for you? And I told them, no, don't send an ambulance. It'll wake my parents up. And I put my (laughs) shoes on, and I went into Methodist Hospital in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And like in its kind of a funny story, it took me a little while to realize that I had been sent up to the psych hospital, I, I didn't know what they were going to do to me, but at some point a door closed behind me and I realized like, whoa, what is, what have you, what have you done? And from then on, things unfolded in a similar way that they do in the book and in the film in a lot of ways. Um, my parents came to visit me. My mother said she was very proud of me. They had been very, very worried about me and I, I had some horrible, horrible fights with them, fights where I let my inner monologue out, you know, and I had my mother saying things to me like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You have to fight this. You can't let this control you. I was in the hospital for about a week. They put me on different medication. Uh, They told me that I was bipolar and not depressed, that I had long depressive episodes and then very short manic episodes, which actually was pretty consistent with my behavior. I came out and I started writing about it and I knew as soon as I started writing about it that I had to keep writing about it because this was the thing. This don't lose it, because I lost books, you know, where you start it and you Yeah. You feel it and then you take a break and then it's gone. And I just don't lose this, just don't lose this and and over a very, very intense short period I wrote It's kind of a funny story and I turned it in and uh, it got published pretty similar to
0: how I wrote it. Not a lot, not a lot changed. You know, it's it's interesting. I'll stop you. Like I've talked to a few writers on this program who've described some. You know, not exactly similar, but similar bursts of creative energy um, that led to uh, you know a book and a publication. And it happened in a way uh, that I think is at odds with the with the normal story. You know what I'm saying? Normally it's like you slog over something for years and years or months and months and months but when you compare the writing of it's kind of a funny story with other projects that you've worked on is this is this the anomaly or is this how it usually happens for you? It's the anomaly. Yeah. I mean did it feel like when you were was it glorious because it seems, it sounds great, you know, from a creative perspective to be that on fire with it and to feel it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it just it didn't seem like it it didn't you didn't have to struggle against it maybe as much as you do with other books, right? <laughs> For fear of making you or anyone
1: else listening to this jealous. It was glorious. I knew I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And when I finished it, I called my dad and I read the end of it to him and he said that's that's good. That's great. I it was like a fever dream, though, because I would take naps and I would wake up and I'd be sweating and I would listen to. This was the only time in my life. Maybe I should do this again. That I, I listened to the John Coltrane, a Love Supreme album. Over, I would just put put that on quietly in the background, or and just, we're just making tea, napping. You know, I didn't have a job. I was living off the money from Be More Chill. It happened. Uh, it, it, it was really great.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, and it's also, but it's also like some alchemy. You know, he took a not so great situation and turned it into something positive. So
1: I don't expect it ever to happen again that way.
0: Yeah. I,
1: I'm not a musician. I'm someone who who has to have a long career in order to have a full life, and I've given up thinking that it's just going to happen
0: that way. Again, I feel like I'm lucky that it happened that way once. Yeah. Well, and then the book obviously went on to become a movie. Mm -hmm. So like, take us through, I guess, I mean, we're working chronologically. So if there's anything else that, uh, you know, precedes that, but I mean, how did, how did that all unfold? Did it happen in conjunction with the publication? Did the movie deal come together close, close to that? Or did it happen after the fact?
1: There was interest in the book as a film early on from Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden.
0: Who directed one of my favorite films, Half Nelson. Right. Yeah.
1: I met them in 2006. There's a big difference between there being interest in a book or a book being an optioned and a book getting made. I'd already been through the option process with Be More Chill, uh, which hasn't been made. Maybe it will be made someday. I didn't become better after It's Kind of a Funny Story was released. I was still doubtful about my future as a writer. Like Be More Chill, it wasn't a big success out of the box. And I bounced between computer jobs, living in New York, 2006, 2007, 2008, and still making a lot of the bad and difficult decisions that people make in their 20s and uh, not producing anything not producing any writing of, of real value but it's kind of a funny story quietly started selling a couple hundred copies a week and I, I spoke at schools that's something that's been very important to me and helped sustain me what like what is the nature of these talks i mean is it how not to go crazy in high school me showing up at a school and telling the story of my dad telling me to keep my antenna up and talking about a few other lessons i've learned along the way and trying to offer strategies for stress management right it's kind of a funny story reach people in large part because a lot of the stresses that I was going through in my mid-20s now happen to people in their teens. Uh, They think that if they don't get into a certain college, they're going to die. And uh, that's very damaging. And we have a lot of depressed, bipolar, suicidal people in this country who are really young. So Mm -hmm. uh, getting a chance to go out there and Offer something, offer something positive. That was really helpful to me during this time. Meanwhile, the book is on IMDb as a movie. <laughs> I would get emails, you know, Dear Mr. Vizzini I'm a 14 year old actor and I really want to play Craig and he kind of a funny story movie. <laughs> I'll respond and say, Well, the movie's not actually being made yet. It's just been optioned. And uh, I'll keep you in mind. I promise I'll, I'll email you back if something happens and you can audition for the movie. And then one day I got an email. I saw the word audition in it. I said, oh, it's another one of these. I looked at it more closely later. It said, I just did audition for the movie, and I'm really excited about it. I hope I get the part. And I was like, what? What's going on? So I made a phone call, and it turned out, yeah, they were going forward with it. It was not turnaround, but it got picked up by Focus Features, and it's happening. Right. And I met my wife just around the same time that that happened. So that, that was a, a really good time for me. and, and yeah. a new how, did you, how did you guys meet? We met at a party. met oh, through okay. mutual friends. We had, I, I'd, I'd met her before and I was in a different relationship and I intentionally erased her contact information because I knew that I, that if I contacted her, it would I, I, I didn't want to cheat on the person I was with at the time. And I knew that if I started talking to her, I would be just infatuated with her. So right, right. like the jealousy, I just removed that <laughs> avenue. Yeah, I was going to say, but I think that made her more interested in me actually. Uh, I have deleted you. Yeah. She just didn't exist. And then, but then I, I was single and, and she was too. And we got together at a party and it quickly became clear that it was really good and uh, we went to the set the movie together a couple times. That was very special, exciting stuff. Yeah. And a, a, a year later the movie came out and it cost $8 million to make reported, which means it actually cost $16 million right. to make right. and it made $6.35 million. So that's the story of the It's Kind of a Funny Stories movies reception but since then like the book it has developed a life on tumblr people make gifts out of it i love the movie i think it's a a very good representation of the book and i think it's a good movie i was disappointed that it wasn't more of a success But it has this life as something that people blog about and tweet about. Like DVD life.
0: Yeah. Or Netflix life or whatever, you know?
1: Well, it won't be on Netflix for eight years or
0: something because of a contractual. How does that work? How does Netflix work? (laughs) I'm forever curious about their new releases. I want them to reorganize the way that they roll these things out so I can have a better understanding. All I know is that I called up Focus Features
1: and I said when will the movie be on Netflix and they said well we'll look into it for you and <laughs> I called back and they said 10 years and I was just like oh but but it was on HBO yeah. a, lot, a lot of people encountered it on on HBO more than anything else I'm not on Tumblr but thank you very much to everybody on Tumblr because little gifts and quotes from the movie get passed around and and it created a whole new market for me in terms of the book. So uh, it uh, led to the book becoming something that gets lumped with some of those books I mentioned before, Speak and of being a wallflower uh, as one of the YA books of the last 10 years that... People know about,
0: and uh, for that I'm incredibly thankful. Movie had a had a lot to do with that. Yeah, of course. No, I mean it's a great thing. I mean, um, I think I was talking to TC Boyle. He didn't have like a. He said, "I don't have a particular interest in working in movies because he's a straight book guy." But he's like, "It's the best thing ever for your book. I mean, it brings more readers to your book." And right, I mean,
1: it's only bad if you are, say, Ira Levin, and you write Rosemary's Baby. And the Rosemary's Baby movie is so good that nobody <laughs> right. even knows it was a book. I, I I think that's
0: the only way that it can go bad. And it, but it's a ra- it rarely happens. It rarely happens. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I obviously want to get to more present times in terms of uh, writing, but I also want to talk at least a little bit about how you approach the work itself. Like it's a, how disciplined are you? You're obviously getting a lot of work done. Um, but how, and especially now that you have a TV writing job, how are you finding time to write books? Like, how do you balance it all? What does a workday look for you? Look like for you? Uh, do you know who Jerry Stahl is? Yeah, I've
1: had him on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, Jerry is a great writer and an amazing personality to see live at oh, a yeah. reading. Or yeah, event. yeah, yeah. And I saw him do a reading at Skylight Books, and somebody asked him that question, and he just said, "Oh." please what next question i just wouldn't answer it because you know at some point if if you're doing this professionally which i am and a big part of my growth was coming to terms with the fact this is what i do now i'm like metallica you know james Hetfield and metallica and behind the music he's like well of course we're going to keep going if i was in metallica i'd be working at a gas station, (laughs) right? Right. I've erased other options in my life. I'm a writer. It's the only thing I can do. So at that point, it becomes a matter of deadlines. I mean, my working life is dictated by my deadlines. I'm very, very lucky to work with a partner in television. And that's part of this story, too, because in between, it's kind of a funny story of the book, and it's kind of a funny story of the movie. When I was struggling... I wrote a whole novel in there, a big adult wannabe Jonathan Lethem, wannabe Tom Wolfe novel. Right. That is still on my computer. I gave it to my agent, and I was told basically it's probably not the direction that we want to go in. I spent 22 months working on it, and it's still there. It's, yeah. It's called Urban Renewal Renewal. Uh, maybe. <laughs>
0: The so lost masterpiece. Maybe
1: it'll be published when I'm dead. I don't know. I, looking back at it, I see what was wrong with it, and maybe I'll fix it up anyway. During that time when I was really creatively stagnant in terms of the novel writing, I started working with Nick Antosca. Yeah, Nick Antosca is a, he's a he's a horror novelist. He writes literary horror novels. The uh, well, last thing he wrote won a Shirley Jackson Award. He's got a new new one coming out soon. He was interested in writing something for television. We were friends. We used to go to KGB bar together. We were friends for half a decade before we started working on something together. It was such a relief to be able to go to Nick's house. He lived right on top of Occupy Wall Street, basically, which didn't exist yet, but that's where he lived. Okay, yeah. And I would get in the subway and leave my novel problems... Relationship problems behind, and I would go to Nick's house, and we would watch movies, and we would work on this pilot. And it was so freeing to be able to be creative and not be alone. Right. So that was a big, big part of this uh, uh, growth for me. And when we had finished the pilot and had gotten some interest from from William Morris about it. We decided we're going to go out to L.A. We're going to do it. And luckily, my wife-to-be was game for that. She lived in New York for a couple of years and was ready to try something else. So we all moved out here. Like the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. packed it up. On on Super Bowl Sunday, 2010, which was a great day to fly. Nobody's on the planes. And this is the crazy thing. Uh, A different Nick, Nick Kelman, another writer, wrote a novel called Girls was just happened to be on the same plane as me and and Sabra, my my wife. We're all coming out here. So deal with it, L.A. writers. The novelists <laughs> from New York are all coming out here. A- anybody you can think of in the novel world has a pilot in their back pocket, and they all want to work in TV. People who have big names So I didn't expect to be interested in working in TV. Uh, your Gary Steingart has a pilot. Jonathan Safran Foer has a pilot. Like, sure. We got to work and started Doing the Hollywood thing, which, yeah, it's a...
0: Taking meetings.
1: It's a specific set of skills. I like learning new skills, so I didn't have a problem with it. You were asking about process. Once you are in a place like Los Angeles that has a creative economy, your process is dictated by the creative economy. Uh, it's It's fall. Uh, This is the season when networks are buying pilots. So do you have a pilot that you can try and sell to a network? Uh, If it's July, you're going to be working on that pilot. If it's late July, you're going to be waking up at 530 in the morning to work on the pilot. So every day is different, and it's dictated by my deadlines.
0: And so, okay, and then balancing between television writing and then the book writing, it just depends. You just fit it in wherever you can fit it in. I don't play video games. Yeah, neither do I.
1: I it's it's it's. Uh, I don't play video games. I don't go to the gym. There are. You look pretty fit. Come on. I I that's <laughs> diet. <laughs> I I have a bicycle that I ride there occasionally. Okay. Uh, it's choices. If I'm. Sitting, vegging out, watching television, which does happen occasionally. There's a voice in my head that goes, all right, "Are you going to be a consumer of culture? or are You going to be a creator of culture? You know, get get up and go do it."
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, so and then the other normals. How did this come about, and how did you actualize it in the midst of all this other stuff?
1: Well, it happened earlier because uh, you know if you know how this works, the book comes out in 2012. I mean, it was it was conceived in 2009. And uh, I had finished this big novel and I got off the phone with my agent and I felt free when I was told maybe you should try something different. I felt like, you know what? The beast is dead. And I, I left it all in the field, as you say.
0: Yeah. This is the lost novel.
1: I tried. Yeah. I tried. And I tried as hard as I could. Right. So I don't, re- I don't regret it at all didn't work. What are you going to do? I always loved magic cards. I always, always, always wanted to write something with a fantasy element. Uh, When I was in high school, towards the end, I was out smoking pot with my friends in the park, and I had this sudden vision Wow! If we were in Dungeons and Dragons, you know, my big friend would have the axe, my little (laughs) friend would have the dagger, and I would have the sword, and we would be adventurers. It could happen. Right. I could see which type of person each, and the other normals was me trying to write to that. Right. And it went through a couple drafts. It, It it wasn't as hard as the. Lost novel. It wasn't as easy as it's kind of a funny story. It was work, uh, but it was fun. Yeah, it was fun work, and it gave me a chance to portray a, a nerd character that I thought was accurate. It didn't just have people throwing themselves at him because he was special, and it gave me a chance to put in some truths that I remember from my my teenage years and it gave me a chance to write some action set pieces yeah. I, and 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 there's this perception in writing that you know, personal writing is the hardest and i understand yeah, yeah.
0: that action's tough, it's tough. A- and and settings i mean I, i'm speaking from my own experience and you can agree or disagree but like uh, writing settings um, that the average reader are, that are either fantastical in nature or that the average reader would not have an immediate frame of reference for. Mm. That's a, that's more difficult. If it's set in New York City, people have some sort of visual frame of reference. But mm-hmm. if it's set in, you know, Never Never Land or in some sort of strange remote wood or desert landscape or whatever it is, it, I find that to be more of a challenge.
1: Yeah, it's it is it's world building. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a skill in and of itself. I always loved. Those books, though, i Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Red Wall. I was a big Red Wall fan. So it was fun to do. And when we came out to Los Angeles, basically I was getting other normals writing done in the morning. And then during the day, I'd go over to Nick's house and we would work on a pilot and then maybe go to a meeting. And that was my life for the first year, year and a half in Los Angeles, the book was basically done by the time uh, we got our first television job, which was on Teen Wolf on MTV.
0: And how did that happen? You just took meetings and they hired you as staffers.
1: Well, the first thing you have to do to write for television, you have to write a pilot. You have to write a good original pilot. Uh, then you get representation. Then you got to read all the pilots, and they come in... Dozens of them come in every yeah.
0: year. Get them on a disc, yeah, or yeah. whatever.
1: And uh, the first thing we did was we read the Teen Wolf pilot. We were like, this is great. Uh, this is really, really fun, and this could be incredible. Right. And we told our agents, we got to meet with Jeff Davis. we got to meet with the creator of this show. Can we make it happen? And we met with him before season one began. And... Nick had found this book called The Book of Werewolves. It's by Sabine Baring Gould, who is best known for writing the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers. Okay. But who also produced this 19th century compendium of all the known werewolf lore that... It's one of these books that's in the public domain, but different small companies put out different versions of it. Sure. Crazy stuff. I mean, really... Nutty torture of werewolves, all the werewolf hunts in France in the 16th century when there were people who were suspected being werewolves were hung. We brought it to Jeff in the meeting and left it with him as like a gift, and also to show you got to show that you care about the show. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. And, and 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 I think that was you basically bought your way on as what you said. A you're part saying. of it. No, the, 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 that was just the beginning. We didn't get hired. Didn't get hired that year. Um, Teen Wolf came out. It was on MTV. It was great. Season 2 was coming. I went down to Comic-Con in 2011 and we were trying to get on season 2. Now the show's a successful show. We've got another pilot in our hands that's even better. Let's let's try again. I waited in line for a signed Teen Wolf T-shirt from the cast. I saw that they were doing a signing. I was like, oh, great. I'm going to get a T-shirt signed. I waited in line. I get to the end were of you, the Were line. you handing out flyers? No. Like, this I pilot was,
0: is the Teen Wolf
1: of pilots. I was, I, <laughs> I've gotten good about the – I don't do the flyer thing anymore. I've moved, I've moved beyond that. I, I, I do wonder at what point – George R. R. Martin, like, he can't worry about anything anymore. Like, he doesn't, you know, send out personal emails to people. I, I, I don't know at what point I'll be there, uh, but I am beyond the flyer point. <laughs> I get to get of the line, and I meet the cast. I'm, like, I'm actually, I'm a writer, and, I'm, you know, we're, being my writing partner, trying to write for the show. And one of the actors turns and grabs one of the executives from MTV, who's also in this booth. And says that, and I can see the look on his eyes of like, oh no, some yeah. some, some, some nut in the line thinks right. they can write for me. <laughs> and he turns and he actually, and he recognized me because we met with him earlier, and, he's, and, he's, and he was like, oh, hey, you know, we're actually like, what, what, are you, what are you, what are you, we're actually interested, what are you doing waiting in line, Ned? Why are you waiting in line? And I'm like, waiting in line? I I wouldn't presume that because I'm an aspiring writer for your show, I could cut the line. <laughs> right, right. And... Uh, apparently that kind of went around the MTV offices that I was the guy who waited in line to get a shirt a fan. sign.
0: You showed genuine enthusiasm. And and we got hired. Wow. Well, I could keep talking to you uh, all afternoon. It's been so enlightening and fun and I congratulate you on all of your success. I hope that it went well. You enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really great. Well, good luck to you with everything and um, be interested to see what happens for you next. Thanks a lot, Brad. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Ned Vizzini. Go get his new novel. It's called The Other Normals. It is out there now in hardcover from Balzer and Bray. And keep your eyes peeled for House of Secrets due out in April 2013. That is co-authored with Chris Columbus. You can find Ned online at nedvizzini.com. He's on Twitter at ned underscore Vizzini, And he's also on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to go get the free Other People app, the official app of this program. It is available at no cost for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's free. Did I mention that? It is the most elegant way to keep up with the show. All new episodes automatically upload to the app. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can download shows to listen to when you're offline. And you can also access premium content from the deeper archives and so on and so forth. So please go get the official Other People app. Uh, Okay, Uh, closing thoughts. What were the themes today? What's the takeaway? Perfectionism, not letting perfect be the enemy of good, insecurity, internal pressure, procrastination, creative blockage, self-sabotage, expectations management, cannabis, uh, all of which seem to be recurring themes in the lives of writers generally, don't they? Uh, We must have courage. That's what I think. We must be willing to leap. Please remember that Jean Genet was a paid informer for the Nazis in World War II and that Paul Robeson died of pneumonia and kidney failure. That is all for now. I will be back again in a couple of days with another podcast-type situation. Thank you for listening, folks. Thanks for spreading the word about the program. I appreciate it. If you want to write to me, let me know your thoughts. Tell me a story. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Dot com. Okay? Have a nice day. Be nice to people. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to animals. Spread positive energy. The ripple effect is large. It is large. It is the size, it is large.